Hello, and welcome to episode 50 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. I think we're all pretty excited to be here at episode 50, because if you do some simple math and figure out when you'd get to 50 episodes doing a weekly podcast, you, of course, would come up with just short of two years, which is how long it took us. So thanks for sticking with us through the ups and downs of podcasting and often not podcasting. Um, It's a big week in tennis. We have five events that happened last week, four more happening this week, uh, just at the ATP and WTA tour levels. And I want to jump right in and talk about, let's go straight to the Rio de Janeiro 500. That was the one ATP 500, so the, the biggest men's tournament on the docket this past week. And... Everything went sideways pretty early on. Dominic Team lost his first match. Fabio Fanini lost his as well. So there were there was one seeded player left in the second round. No seeded players left in the quarterfinals. Um, two first time finalists. Obviously a first time champion. A first final for Felice Avje Aliasim, the 18 year old Canadian. And the winner was Laszlo Gera of Serbia, um, who really came out of nowhere for this one. And Carl, we we both watched some of Jera playing. Uh, it's really tough to to judge a player when they have a a big first breakthrough accomplishment like this, but they do it against mostly weaker competition. So, based on what you saw, what do you think about Jera? Is is he now a clay quarter to watch, or is it, does he remain one of the fringy guys who we probably aren't going to see in a semifinal or final again anytime soon? I really wish I'd seen the Dominique team match. I mean, that was the one really tough opponent, a top 50 opponent, top 70 opponent who he played. And team isn't just a top 70 opponent. He's one of the three or four best clay quarters in the world. And Jerry won it in, in straight sets, 6-3, 6-3. So if that match is an indication of his potential and his uh, – you know his level on clay, then it's it's pretty positive. And then the, there's the cliche about the rest of the matches: you can only play the players in front of you. That's how the tennis draw goes. But, or if it, that player is Aliash Badeni, who pulls out of the semifinal, you can't <laughs> even play the player in front of you. He couldn't even. He was ready to. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that would have been another good test. I mean, Badeni's ranking isn't so hot right now, but he's been really good on clay for the last few years. And would would have been maybe a tougher test than his other opponents. But, you know, I mean, this is a guy who's been doing well on clay for a while, maybe not well enough to win a 500 or well enough to, to win what we think of as a 500. But I didn't see anything obvious in his game that suggested to me he's got, you know, the, the stuff to be one of the 15 best players on clay. But didn't see too many weaknesses either and it just seemed like a very solid approach to to points and point construction yeah that was my takeaway too he seemed pretty smart uh, a really solid backhand like nothing special but um sort of like not as offensive as a Gilles Simone backhand but a similar type of shot that just serves as a backboard that'll keep him in a lot of points um the the win of the tournament moves him up to number 37 in the rankings, I think, which is 
feels pretty aggressive. I mean, understandable given how many points are at stake in Rio, but maybe a little optimistic from at this point. The his ELO ranking adjusted to seventy second. Uh, of those two numbers, that's a pretty big gap between thirty seven on the ATP list and seventy two on the ELO list. Which one feels more right to you? Is and that seventy two on the on the surface overall. list or overall? Yeah, overall. Yeah, I mean, I think winning a five hundred against a slate that looks like it would maybe be an average to easy slate for a 250 um, would often give you a split that big. And I don't know. I I think it's somewhere in between, uh, probably right in between, maybe a little bit closer to 37. It's, we were just talking before recording about the difficulty of pinpointing who exactly is 50th in the world and, and what, what does it mean to be top 50 versus just outside? Um, but 37 feels high. 37 feels is almost seated at a slam. 72 is, you know, on the fringes of getting into some some of the bigger tournaments. Feels like he's probably somewhere in between there. Now, you said in, in passing that you thought team was one of the three or four best clay quarters. So I'm assuming you're putting team in there with Rafa and Novak Djokovic and... You're asking me? Yeah. So I looked this up the other day because I figured he was number two or three. And at the time, he was number four behind Zverev, who had really nice Masters results on clay last year. Yeah. Um, and it it felt to me like team probably overall body of work was ahead of Zverev. But then again, maybe I was overweighting the wins he's had over Rafa and his French Open results relative to just like every clay tournament he plays, which is a lot, maybe eight or ten a year. So um, I felt like it was safe to say three or four. Yeah, I agree. I had completely forgotten that Zverev totally deserves a place in that conversation. And I think it's easy to make the mistake of overrating players on a surface if they are if if they are very much better on that surface than average. So I think of Team as a better clay quarter because he's such an extreme clay quarter. Um, he's as as extreme as pretty much anybody on tour, maybe even including Rafa and Zverev is not. So that's not necessarily fair, though, if you're trying to predict who's going to win a match between Team and Zverev. Uh, apologies, by the way, for that phone call that Jeff bra- bravely talked through. Uh, somebody mistakenly thought this was a call-in show, and maybe in the future it will be. Maybe. Yeah, I've, I was actually thinking about this um, I, I, from putting my email in the middle of the uh, last two around the net posts on the heavy topspin blog, I've gotten a little more email than in the past and maybe we'll have a, a mailbag feature either on the blog or a mailbag segment of the podcast, something like that. I don't remember what any of the questions were, so we're not going to do it now, but if you think that's and Jeff a good may idea, or may not remember what well, you wrote, you can ask us, ask us some questions. Yeah, I may or may not see it. I may or may not answer. I may or may not remember. With incentives like that, I don't see how you're not sending me a question right now. Um, another thing we talked about before starting the recording was Gera's opponent in the quarterfinal, Kaspar Ruud, who is, I think he's 19 now, uh, still very much a prospect. Based on his quarterfinal result in Rio, he's maybe back at a career high, around 107 or something like that. 
so, I mean, he's still on the upswing, still a ton of potential, but he has stalled for the last few years. He He's matching a career high that he set a couple of years ago. He won his first challenger when he was super young, I think more than two years ago now. And I, th- I think people expected him, and people including myself, expected him to improve more, faster. And he had a big opportunity this week. I mean, made it to the quarters, beat the last seed standing in Zhao Souza. Um, had the match against Jera in the quarterfinal, would have gotten a walkover in the semi, and then the final against Ajay Aliasim. But won a set against Jera, didn't look great. Um, Carl, do you, you said you watched some of that match as well. Does, it, does he look like someone that's still a big prospect that we can expect to be, I don't know, let's say breaking oh, into the top I don't know. I mean, in a year or two? You, he wasn't far from having a week like Jared did, and, and it takes a week like that to get into the top 50. He did somewhat defy your skepticism from this this show a week ago when you were, we were talking about Riley Opelka's approach to challengers versus ATP events, and was Casper hurting himself by playing the swing where he had to qualify everywhere? And... Um, you know, he it hadn't worked out for him until last week where he did qualify, he did make the quarters, it was an opportunity, it was two close sets. Um, yeah, I didn't see all that much that was impressive. I mean, he was playing on what's been probably his best and favorite surface. And he, I, you know, I saw him in the match he lost, so maybe this isn't the best way to judge his week. But it, one thing that really struck me is he was doing a very clay court thing of running around his backhand and, and trying to hit inside out forehands. And sometimes he hit them inside in to mix it up. And when he hit it inside in, it was often then stretched wide to his forehand. And he didn't seem to really have a good answer for that. Like he couldn't quite get there in time to do more than hit a short, slicey forehand in return. And then he pretty much lost the point. And that pattern repeated itself enough that it seemed like he wasn't it wasn't a good pattern for him and, and he hadn't figured out how to adjust away from that. So maybe it's also no indicative of a backhand that's not as strong as it needs to be so that he doesn't have to run around it quite as much. But yeah, it seemed like he still had a lot to work on. He turned 22 months ago. He has time to work on it and he's gotten his ranking up high enough that he'll get into more events and, you know, maybe directly into some slam draws and, and all of that should give him opportunities to bring his ranking up, play against better players. But yeah, I think he has a lot still to do. Fortunately, still a lot of years left probably on tour. Yeah, definitely a lot of years. And I, this is one of those research projects that I've probably mentioned on the podcast a half dozen times now that I or somebody else needs to do is I think that clay court players tend to, peak later or maybe even break in later so if he is uh someone who's going to have a better career on clay than on hard courts then we're way premature to be talking about and you know if he's if he's stagnated or if he's maybe not going to make it if he's still at age 20 but one of the things you said is what what concerns me as well that there's a there's a lot of things in his game that are good but not great and that seems to me the sort of player who gets stuck at the challenger level. Um, 
His backhand is very solid, but yeah, he chooses to run around it for good reason. When he does run around it, he doesn't have quite enough time. His forehand isn't quite big enough to justify it. The serve is good. It's passable on a hard court even, but it it's not going to win him a lot of cheap points. So he's doing a lot of good things. He probably belongs at or around his current ranking, but it could be a hard slog for him to really establish himself one tier up from that. And by contrast, just thinking about the players who are about the same age that he is. So he he's born at the very end of 98. Uh, two months younger than he is is Alex Dimonor, um, who's ranked in the top 30. Four months younger is Denis Shapovalov, who has some bigger weapons. Uh, only a few months older is Stefano Tsitsipas, also someone with a lot bigger weapons. And one and a half years younger is Feliz Auger Aliassime who was the finalist in Rio. And Carl, we saw him together at the U.S. Open in the first round match that he lost to Shapovalov by retirement. Um, Ajay Aliassim is, is another guy that he doesn't have any really massive weapons that, that explain his rise to this point, which can be a good thing as well as a, a reason for concern. But what is what is your take? I mean, he's, he's one of the one of the biggest, I mean, maybe the biggest star at his age. I mean, of, of people who are 18 years old, he's the only one in the top 180 right now, which is pretty impressive for someone who just made a, a 500 level final, even if it was a bit cheap the way he got there. Um, I mean, what do you think about Ajay Ali? It seems I can certainly right see now. him he, sticking. Is he going to be able to stick at this at level? this level of the ranking? I think, as you suggested, he probably has to develop something that's more of a weapon to to rise. And I don't think that's impossible. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> if I were in in his shoes, I would want to chat up Borna Jorich and and say, "Hey, you were you were an 18 year old who was really promising, but didn't really have one shot that that would consistently trouble opponents. And, and now you've you've got a, a better serve, a bigger forehand, a flatter forehand. What did you do? How, how do you how do you change your game when you're?" Even though you're only 18, you're still many, many years into your tennis development at that point. I mean, I mean, that's something I was wondering your thoughts on as we're talking about this is like, yeah, we're sort of we're giving our best guess about these players trajectories, but they're not standing still and they are working with coaches and, and thinking all the time about their games. What do you think they can do and what is the best thing that someone could do to try to maximize their chances of going all the way to the top 10, top 20? Multi-million. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the million-dollar question or hundred-million-dollar question. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I could probably fill out the entire rest of the podcast speculating on that, but I'm talking off already. Um, and one, of the, one of the big questions, I guess I'll focus on two big questions. One is how much filling out and getting stronger you can reasonably expect. And this is something you hear commentators talking a lot when when watching someone like Zverev or Shapovalov who are tall but skinny guys like Zverev's um, physical trainer has a five-year plan or something so at the end of the five-year plan I think Zverev will be fully collectivized that is a good a socialist economy something like that um, yeah he'll be a lot stronger it was a great joke, wasn't it? It's it's one of those one of those jokes that you can truly appreciate without laughing at all. Um, 
he's going to be a lot stronger. Shapovalov presumably will grow into it as well. Ajay Ali Asim is the same. He, he doesn't look that tall to me, uh, but he's apparently 6'3", and then another inch or two of afro on top of that. And he's pretty slim, so presumably he's he's going to get a little bulkier and have some more weight behind his shots. So some of these weapons that are lacking, you expect players to develop them just by getting bigger, by, by physically maturing. Uh, I'm not sure what to, what to expect from that in terms of results, like whether that translates into 20 ATB ranking places or none at all, or if it, it must depend a lot on the player. But the other thing is this, is this theme that we've kept coming back to that we, we talk about this aging trajectory and I'm not convinced it's real. Like we've we've seen it in other sports. There are examples of specific players who get steadily better and then peak in their late twenties or thirty, and then and then steadily fade away into more and more obscurity. But players are peaking at thirty five. Players are having good years at twenty four and then never improving. Uh, I I saw an interesting blog post on on track and field today by Ross Tucker. I think the blog is Science of Sport, something like that. And he was focusing on, I think it was a seven-year-old who just set a big age group record for some sprint distance. And he made the point that if you're if you're posting such great results at an early age, then it it could be that you're on some really optimistic trajectory, but it's more likely that you're just a really unique young person. I mean, in this case, it's pretty extreme because we're talking about a seven-year-old. It sounds like this guy is a very unique, big, physically developed seven-year-old. And you can't project from that that if he's a very physically developed seven-year-old, he's going to be an incredibly physically developed 25-year-old, and he's going to be breaking world records. He could take any number of directions from here. And I I wonder how much we can say the same about 18-year-olds or even 21 or 22-year-olds who are doing great things in tennis. Are they doing that because they did their development early? I mean, is Stefano Tsitsipas like just a a fringy top 10 guy. He just got there really fast. Or is Stefano Tsitsipas a guy who's already become a top 10 or close to top 10 guy at age 21. And that's just a stepping stone on the way to being top three and winning slams. I mean, I don't know how you look at a player at age 18 or 20 or 23 and know which one of those is true. But I think there's plenty of examples in tennis history of, the extremes of both of those stories. Yeah, that and brings to mind two things. One yeah, is... beats me how to know which track he's on. You had mentioned that for some of these guys, there's probably a lot more physical development to come. And is it optimal to develop everything else first and then get stronger? Uh, or could it go in either direction? And if it is optimal this way, is it because this is how you like win matches to get to this point and then you get stronger once you've already gotten to that ranking or like, is, is it actually just like detrimental to your tennis? If you are still developing your strokes and, and mentality and, uh, and speed, but you're also trying to build muscles. Uh, I, I, I have no idea. Um, I think maybe some of the late developing players went a different, a different sequence, but I don't think we really have enough sample to, to say anything definitive. I'm ever thinking is, just more broadly, we're trying to make projections out into the five to 15 year distance. And it's hard to make projections into the minute and hour distance. Like if you look at 
the first set of a match as a predictor of what's going to happen yeah. in the second set and potentially beyond, um, that that's pretty dangerous too. I mean, how many times have we seen someone bagel someone else and then lose the next set or even lose the match? That's an extreme example, but it does happen. Uh, but hey, semifinals in Delray, Radu yep, Alda yep. beat Mackenzie McDonald. Pretty, three, pretty six, unexpected six love, second and third love. set so, scores based go. on the first set. It's a big finding in baseball analytics too that how a pitcher does the first three innings, the first time through the rotation basically – doesn't tell you very much about how the pitcher is going to do after that. And it, it just is so counterintuitive, but such a useful uh, check on any hubris we might have about our ability to forecast into tomorrow, let alone into the next decade. Yeah, that's a, a good point. I was going to mention some baseball findings as well. I've been doing some digging into various baseball projection systems and the, their level of confidence. And it's pretty striking how we we know so much about baseball. It's the gold standard for all this sports analytical stuff we do. And we've established very well what aging trajectories look like for different skills and so on. And the best state-of-the-art projection systems are really very approximate and not that much better than pretty simple projection systems. And that's just talking about next year. So, yeah, to your point, absolutely, Carl projecting next year is hard and there's tons of noise and every year beyond that is increasingly unclear. So combine that with the fact that we're looking at tennis where uh, the very structure of the sport tends to amplify luck. So someone like Jera, because he got lucky this week, uh, he's going to have more opportunities in more tournaments. Maybe he'll, he'll continue to beat our wildest projections Whereas somebody else who missed this opportunity might fall out of the top 100, miss the cut into Roland Garros, miss that opportunity, and then it kind of spirals out of control and he's still playing challengers in three years, even if he's not that much worse of a player than Laszlo Gera. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it, I hope it's understood by our listeners that anytime we're projecting the future, we are we are implying error bars that are enormous. It's just the nature of the beast, and, and to a certain extent, a lot of this stuff is only fun to talk about. I mean, long-term projections of tennis players are, are so hard. Hopefully, we will figure out a way to get better at it and at least start to quantify the error bars. Yeah, but and we, you know, we're not even accounting for it. A long way to go even to get to that point. We're talking a little bit uh, mechanically about some of this, but if you are that player who has the bad luck and is stuck playing challengers and you know that your peer got a good draw or made a good decision in retrospect about which tournament to play or whatever, and you didn't, like, what effect does that have on your motivation, on your desire to carry on, your desire to do the hard work, you know, your um, commitment to, to diet and everything? Like, there are all sorts of things that can that can be thrown arrive thrown arise not an expression but can be thrown off by a butterfly flapping its wings on the side your side of the court. <laughs> Yeah, usually in tennis, though, See, every, the butterfly you've tried ends to project up getting that killed by one of the ball just kids. got thrown off by that ball kid. Yeah. Damn, ball kids. So I, I just, in passing, mentioned Radu Albert, who had a, a big week of his own. 
he won in the 250 in Delray Beach. That's his first title and the first title for a player from Moldova, which means at long last, it is legitimately hard to play tennis against the Moldovans. (laughs) You're so close. Play the Moldovans at tennis. I was so close. Darn it. So for those of you who don't get the reference... Uh, yes, I have a lot of experience doing Carl, it. Carl, why don't you tell uh, us one about One of my favorite tennis Moldovans books, tennis. maybe the favorite tennis book, is called Playing the Moldovans at Tennis. It's by Tony Hawk, and he's a British comedian who got drunk enough to suggest to his friend that he could beat every member of the English men's soccer team at tennis, reasoning that the sports were different enough that they're great skills that soccer wouldn't translate he and his friend realized though that even in their drunken state they probably couldn't convince these international superstars of english soccer to to play them at tennis so they decided on the team england was playing in the game they were watching which is moldova so he goes to moldova and tries to convince everyone who is in that game to play against him and it ends up being kind of a tour of moldova Moldovan culture. He's he's kept up with Moldova and Moldovan tennis ever since, and follows the players. And I, I asked Rado Albert about the book when I interviewed him for Thirty Love podcast last year at the New York Open, and he was well aware of it. So the the legacy lives on. <laughs> and I have to nitpick some yes, things. Damn it to me, That's Carl. Right. It's Tony I always Hawks, forget which right? one. Tony is which. Hawk is the yeah. This guy may also skateboard, but not to an okay. international level. Yeah, I. Okay. Uh, so, so big achievement for Radu Albert. He beat Dan Evans in the final in Delray. Um, big result for both of them, actually. And Albert didn't have a really tough path. Uh, he, as I mentioned, he beat Mackenzie McDonald in the semifinals, and McDonald had cleared the way by beating a, a semi injured one, Martin Del Potro. Albert did beat Nick Curios. You know, I saw I some know of that match and make of that these days. Not much. Like Curios looked like he wouldn't or couldn't move. It was really it was impressive how well he did, but his movement looked seriously hampered. <laughs> okay, that sounds about right. Um, hopefully, he's not injured. I don't know what to hope for. Should we hope that he's injured and will get better? You know, somebody circulated or recirculated a video of Jerry from a couple of years ago, and it was a similar question where it was the final game of a match or proved to be based on how he was playing, and he was just not moving for balls. And there was some discussion underneath the YouTube video, like, is this guy injured or is he just refusing to play tennis in the last game of the match? Um, Yeah, and I don't know which one. In that case, it's two years ago and Jerry's fine now, but... Uh, in Curious's case, since there's some history of him not giving it all on the court, it is sort of confusing about what to hope is true. Yeah. So with these these four guys who made finals this week, I, I noted their their elos um, through their their finals or titles yesterday. Um, so so Jera, the the winner in Rio. His overall ELO, regardless of surface, is, is 72nd on, uh, of ATP players. Feliz Ajay Aliasim is 90th. Albert is 66th. And Evans is 53rd. Uh, it surprised me a little bit to see Dan Evans at the top of this list. I'm curious, Carl, of these four guys, um, I was going to ask who do you think will be the ranked the highest at the end of the year, but I think that would tilt towards Jera just because he has the 500 points in the bank. 
what if we say 52 weeks from now when when all of these points are are off of their totals who do you Ooh, think that's is a great question the, the top, uh, i mean it still helps to be the highest ranked going into those 52 weeks for entry and seating but um yeah i'll go with elo i mean i've been a big fan of evans's game if not personality for well ever since i first saw him about seven years ago and he's probably of the four of them shown the most potential to beat to win like a big match against a top player uh i don't know i could have recall bias and should probably check the stats and after all jared did just straight set team on clay but um yeah i i think i think evans has been maybe is that figure that is the guy who had a ranking much lower than his level for quite a while and had to deal with motivation and, and other things during that time. And that maybe with this result, we'll see a different Evans for the next 52 weeks. Yeah. And we, ever since he came back from, I think that's right. I'll, I'll check later. He served. I'm not even sure. So ever since he came back, he's been playing really well. I mean, his results are a little misleading because he had to come back and play challenger qualifying and hasn't played a lot of really good opponents. But I think he's something like 40 and 15 in the last 52 weeks. And like I say, you have to adjust that for the level of competition, but he's winning a lot of matches. And that suggests to me that he's more motivated than he's been in the past. So I was kind of hoping, Carl, that you'd say something, someone else of the four, so I could disagree with you. But um, I, I agree. I think Evans is going to be the, the highest ranked player a year from now. If you were picking peak rankings over the next five years, I think you probably have to go with uh, Feliz Ode Aliasim. But yeah, and I mean, Jerry's young short too, term, and there are Dan a lot Evans of clay points up for grabs bet. every year. So I think he'd be in contention for that five-year um, window. It, by the way, it was a ban for cocaine, and I found it because the Scotsman ran a headline the other day that's sort of like the first line of your obituary problem. Dan Evans threw to first final since cocaine ban. I'm sure he, Evans was really excited to see that headline. <laughs> and then the, <sighs> the next headline will be, it's snowing in Delray Beach. <laughs> hey, uh, anyone hiring a headline writer, Jeff is available. So I... I yeah, and since we're talking about headlines, I'm, I was really disappointed that last week after the New York Open, A, that Braden Schnur didn't win, and and B, that it wasn't a big enough event to make the New York papers, so I was really hoping for a New York Post headline of sure thing, in, or Schnur thing, in really big letters. Um, and I did want to revise my question about these four finalists and throw in Opelka. Do you, would you still pick oh, that's, Evans that's a year a really from now one. over um, Opelka a year from now? I don't know. I mean, I still have trouble based on what I see and also based on what the stats say, seeing Opelka, Karlovich, and Isner as all that different from a coin flip every match. And if you get enough coin flips in your favor, enough in a row at enough different events throughout the year, you can actually build a pretty good ranking. Um, yeah, I mean, in Isner's case, a great ranking. Um, top 10. And then, you know, Isner being ranked that high and for much of his career being ranked in the top 20 makes me think, okay, that's not fair. But the stats somewhat back that, that viewpoint. Um, yeah, I think I still will put Evans ahead of Opelka because... 
that New York Open title felt a little out of nowhere. But um, I think it'll be an interesting race among all of them. Like they, they all, they all have a lot of opportunity, and they'll get to play in a lot of tournaments that they probably didn't get to play in the previous 52 weeks, and that'll be fun to see. Yeah, and, and I wanted to make that point about Albert in particular. His ranking is up, not quite in the top 50, I think, somewhere in the 50s. And I was looking at his results from the past year. He has basically nothing to defend until Wimbledon. He made the third round at Wimbledon last year. But I think he won one match in Miami, one match at Roland Garros, and then two or three other matches total until Wimbledon. So he's he, his ranking already got him into Indian Wells in Miami. His ranking now from from this win in Delray is going to get him to most of the other tournaments he would want to play. So he's going to have a lot of opportunities to increase his ranking without even having to do much. So we, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the top 40 going into Wimbledon, let's say. Maybe even a little better than that. Seeing well, it at the, Wimbledon seems the risky, like a lot. The risky thing this time of year not out is of the question. to see uh, all that opportunity and then also not see the word clay next to all those one-and-done tournaments. He's 10-21 uh, and 21 in his career <laughs> tour level on clay. Um, so I'm not sure he'll rack up that many points there, but may- maybe at the... Indian Wells Miami double. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe not. And I guess the problem with Indian Wells in Miami is, as an unseated player, the deck is stacked against you. Um, he's going. It, it, he gets an unseated first round match, but then you start hitting hitting seeds starting in the second round. And Albert seems like the type of guy who doesn't have a ton of upsets in him. Uh, Evans is probably more likely to. I don't know, face somebody like, I don't know, can't come up with a good example, but someone in the mid-teens or mid-twenties and, and get an easy win or two. Um, but I guess we'll have to see. So I, I do want to get to the WTA and some of the big results on on that side. But one more thing I wanted to talk about on the men's side with the Rio de Janeiro 500. We've already mentioned how how weak that tournament ended up being just in terms of how the seeds performed. Like I said, one seed into the, sec- into the second round, no seeds into the quarterfinals. And it seems like we've heard this story before. I mean, this was pretty extreme. I think it's it's happened before that we've had no seeds in a 500 quarterfinals, but never only one seed into the second round. So it's pretty unprecedented stuff. But the other clay 500s are Hamburg, which comes after Wimbledon, and... Barcelona, which is right in the heart of the clay season and is the Rafael Nadal show. Uh, so aside from the fact that you have Nadal and occasionally a couple of other strong Spaniards like Ferrer in Barcelona, we've had a lot of surprise results at these clay 500s. And Carl, do you think that's just because Rio's out of the way and Hamburg's the wrong time of the calendar. Is, is there something else going on here that's giving us? Yeah, so I mean, many I, I'd love to also check that our intuition here is right, but it, it feels right. I mean, I, I think with Rio, it's like location and time of year, and it, it's the fact that it's a 500 will have to do with like technical reasons of seating capacity and prize money and whatever else goes into determining what gets to be a 500. But it's part of a swing where you're going to get pretty similar field strength across the swing. And 
there's no particular reason why Marseille, which was the same week, is not going to have pretty much the same strength that Rotterdam had the week earlier on the sort of indoor European hardcourt swing of February. Um, so, yeah, it definitely feels like a 500 name only. Like, it's not really a decision of do I want to play that 500, but do I want to play that whole swing is the sort of cumulative prize money and appearance fee and and ranking points on available is is that enough reason to do it and then yeah hamburg is exhibit one for my frustration with the current tennis calendar and uh it it it, i mean i guess if it were a masters it would get a better field even if it were an optional masters like monte carlo but it just doesn't make sense in any like bigger picture um Barcelona is more difficult to explain, and also I'm more skeptical of the thesis covering Barcelona, just in that I think there have been some pretty good fields there, and we think of it as the Rafa show because he'll win it every time, but some really good players have have been in the mix. But, yeah, I mean, it could just be more a commentary on clay than anything else because a lot of top guys skip Monte Carlo, too. And that's got a lot of money and, and points available, but a lot of players just pretty much play the minimum on clay, a lot of the top players. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd want to test this further to see if there's really something across these these tournaments at different points in the calendar. Yeah, it's, it's not anything in common. At least there's a lot of reasons that are, are expl- explainable by one tournament at a time. But I do wonder, like, it's one of the last things you said, that many of the best players on clay are are not exactly clay quarters. Like, obviously Djokovic is, we'll see in Roland Garros, I guess, but maybe the best clay quarter right now. Uh, Murray turned into a very good one. Eventually Federer was very competitive on clay for a long time. We've got Zverev now who's not choosing to play any clay when he doesn't have to. So you you could have a situation where of the top five best players on clay, maybe five is stretching it, but arguably the top five, you've got only one guy, Rafael Nadal, who's really a clay quarter, who's going to choose to play clay court tournaments when he doesn't have to. So you end up with a sort of lopsided clay field, lopsided when Rafa's playing or when Dominic Team is there and not losing to Laszlo Gera, uh, or just weak and anonymous when Nadal isn't there or Team loses early. And I think losing David Ferrer uh, first to injury and now to retirement, uh, that's going to make that more extreme without... I don't think I see any any clay court superstars on the horizon at, at least at, at that sort of top five on the surface Yeah, level, I mean, it seems uh, like the specialists the right now are generally not good enough or good uh. enough on the other surfaces to 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 make for them being one of the, the overall stars of the tour. Yeah, and, and so many of the top players aren't really specialists. Um, they can play on every surface, but if because the the tour is let's say i don't know two-thirds hard and grass court one-third clay something like that uh, you can construct a full season with not very much clay court tennis and still have a shot at getting the a good ranking at the end of the year making tons of money staying a superstar you can't do that by prioritizing clay above all the other other things I mean, just the, the south american swing is really easy to leave out of your schedule 
Um, I mean, if, if Nadal can regularly do it, then certainly someone like Zverev can as well. There's not much to be lost by skipping that part of the calendar. And then it just depends on how many European tournaments you want to play leading up to Roland Garros. And as you say, Monte, Monte Carlo is often the casualty there. So, as promised five minutes ago, I want to talk some WTA. And the first topic, and maybe last, if as it could turn out, is Belinda Bencic, who won the Premier 5 event in Dubai, and she really did it in style. She beat four top 10 players in the last four rounds. Not sure I even remember who they are at this point. It feels like a long time ago, even though it was about 48 hours ago that she beat Petra Kvitova in the final. Um, she knocked out Sabalenka in the round of 16. I think it was Halep she beat in the quarterfinals. Spitalina. And then blanking on who she beat in the semis. Spitalina. That's why I was talking slowly, so Carl could look it up for us. So that's a, a really solid week. Um, it harkens back to uh, her last title at this level, which I think was in Canada three years ago, where she also beat, I think it was the same, four top ten players. Uh, she had some injuries and and otherwise weak performances in the meantime. But with this result, she's back up to 23 in the WTA rankings, and her ELO is back up to 14th, uh, 12th on hard courts. And... This is the sort of player that's really tough to evaluate because there's there's not a lot in her recent track record other than this tournament to get really excited about. But man, Sabalenka, Halep, Svitolina, Kvitova, back to back to back to back. I mean, that's that's dangerous stuff. I mean, so Carl, do you think? I mean, let's do the same exercise we, we did with Jera. Bet- between 23 in the WTA rankings and 14 in the ELO All right, this time I'm going to try to be a little more precise and actually look at your ELO ratings and see who who I'm comparing her to. Um, ooh, yeah, there's some good ones between 14 and 23. It's, as, as many have pointed out recently, WTA is quite deep with talent. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'm going to go with 14 as feeling closer to right partially because she has been in the top 10 before and had these results against top 10 before. I know that eight of her career top 10 wins came at these two tournaments she won that you mentioned, Toronto in 2015 and Dubai last week. But still, an overall career record against the top 10 of 17 and 15 is really good. I mean, a lot of top 10 players have losing records against the top 10 because that's how it goes. Um, So, yeah, I... I know it's it's just one tournament. I also know that the the thing I like to point out often, the, the kind of big effect of a very close result definitely comes into play here. She beat Sabalenka despite winning a lower percentage of return points and then was basically even on return points one with, with Halep and Kvitova and just ahead against Vitalina. So any of those matches could have gone the other way and they were all three setters and there is an E in Bencic, so... Get, get out your new nickname for her. Um, still impressed. Yes. B3 oh, because of the three sets. Sorry, I'm, I'm really slow on the uptake. Yep, okay. Got it. Yeah, And in Belinda, good. you could have the B3. We should just call her B3. So yeah, that's a good point. These were all really close wins, um, but yeah, that top ten record is 
is something to keep in mind. You charted now, all four, it looks like. I watched, I think, all four of those matches. Yeah, all four of those matches. I charted all four. Yeah, I've got to got to get myself under control. So the commentators were talking a lot in several of those matches about her court position. You know, the thing that makes her good, at least in the conventional wisdom, is she she takes a very aggressive position, very close to the baseline, often inside the baseline, including on the service return. And she's comfortable playing half volleys or balls on the rise, um, maybe more than any other top woman. I mean, one one player who comes to mind in the same conversation is Elise Mertens, who won last week in Doha with a, an equally impressive surprise—maybe not equally impressive, but also very impressive surprise title, beating Halep in the final match. There, she's also pretty aggressive, hanging out around the baseline or a step behind, and. I, I'm curious, Carl. Do you do you think that's that's a, a real thing, like something that could that could be really beneficial to a player to have that skill, as opposed to just something that commentators <laughs> uh, talk about? Because they I mean, have a it lot makes perfect sense. Thing. It's it's the classic way to create what is effectively power uh, by having the same effect of robbing time from your opponent, and it also opens up bigger angles on the court. I mean, Monica Seles won a lot of slam titles playing that way. Um, you know, the the player who immediately came to mind when when you described that commentary was the was Eugenie Bouchard. And I don't know Oh, I have to stop I'm sorry to interrupt Carl, but David Mercer, one of the commentators I'm talking about, in one of the benches matches, he had the most incredible fact about Jeannie Bouchard um, and this feels too good to be true but apparently when she made her run to the final in Wimbledon a few years ago she hit that sounds familiar I was covering that Wimbledon and I remember some just staggering stats about her and her positioning um, and there's something especially about Wimbledon like on the one hand I guess the ball won't bounce that high so you can handle it but like you have to be really quick to to react um yeah, and you know Bouchard has really struggled since her injury to to return to that level, and I don't know if that's a cautionary tale or something specific about Bouchard or her injury, but at her best, it was it really was incredible to behold. Like it really, um, I really meant that about sort of being effectively the same as as power because it, it just it felt like her opponents had no time to react, and it really wasn't a commentary on how hard she was hitting the ball, but how quickly she was hitting it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about the comparison because she's been out of the spotlight recently. But yeah, and it, it, you do gain that power. I mean, do you think that for most players, you you lose as much from having to react faster, from having to take balls on the rise? Like, I mean, it. it I mean, there, I just are there think good there must be some players who are much better than others at being able to react quickly and have a short backswing and and control the ball because it is it's very difficult technically to execute those shots again and again. I mean, you have to like the error rate for an average player playing that way must be so high. The the men's player who comes to mind immediately is Federer. Uh, hard to model your whole game after Federer. 
but it's it's certainly one of the distinctive things about him. And, and often when other players are asked what is so different about playing against him, that's what they cite. And they don't mean – what they cite is, you know, how much time he takes away, and they don't mean because he's hitting it harder than, than other players, but because he's hitting it sooner. Uh, Kyrgios is another man who often tries to play that way. And then, you know, we have aggressive baseliners over the years like Davidenko, who, who would also step in and, and take balls early. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that every player would like to step closer to the baseline or inside the baseline when possible. And a lot of them just aren't as good at it. And it's a hard skill to pick up and probably has to do with things that are harder to coach, like hand-eye coordination. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing that struck me when I started watching for it with Benchich is that she she moved backwards and forwards almost like a like a defender in I suppose basketball or probably soccer, um, where she it isn't like she had a sort of a home base. Like, I think a lot of players they have a default position that's one or two steps behind the, the baseline, right in the center of the baseline. Maybe they shift left or right depending on where where they've hit the ball or how the where the other player's leaning. But Benchich seemed like she was just just taking a little bit more territory, a little bit more territory, and then all of a sudden she'd be you know two steps inside the baseline and, and ready to dash forward and swat away a swinging volley or... I mean, w- take advantage of that position. Every once in a while she gets caught off guard where a player will hit a surprisingly great shot that ends up behind her, but still in the court. But it looks like she's just constantly going for that advantage. And I suppose every player is probably doing that to some extent, but most of the players I've watched since watching the, the, that aspect of the game, they're doing it all behind the baseline, like almost never crossing the baseline at all, except when they're rushing to yeah, the Yeah, and that, they, that brings they to, to mind... forward to deal with the shot. That uh, something I've observed and may completely not square with stats and would be hard to test, but I have this sense that when players are aggressive in their position, their opponents sometimes try to hit it past them and often hit it deep because it turns out there's not actually that much space there. And you can win a lot of points just by sort of daring the opponent to, to try yeah. to take advantage of the uh, sort of no man's, no woman's land uh, territory that you're in. And I guess if you're really good and really coordinated, even if they do hit it deep, you might be able to volley it back or half volley it back. But mostly it's just really hard to aim for that tiny sliver of the court between the baseline and, and your opponent. Yeah, that's almost like part of the, the strategy these days in, in coming to the net. One of the things that Craig O'Shaughnessy likes to emphasize so much is that coming to the net isn't just about winning points with volleys it's about forcing errors uh, i mean you can you can serve and volley an entire match and maybe half the time you don't have to hit a second shot um, and it's it's probably not as extreme for someone who's stepping a, a maybe a foot or two inside the baseline but yeah you probably do get a couple free points that way just by forcing your opponent to try for more dangerous shots or more risky shots um yeah, and, and you already alluded to this being difficult, but I'm curious, like, the question I always 
ask myself when talking about a new tactic like this is, is there some way to quantify it? I mean, given that we don't have Hawkeye data and we, we can't look at exactly where players are standing at all times, would there be some some way with match charting data, even if we just look at something like, like winners and errors or types of errors, directions of shots, can you think of any way to, to quantify like, this aggressive This is probably too sparse, position but you mentioned swing volleys and... That's obviously going to be easier to pull off in an aggressive fashion if your resting position is more aggressive. So it's easier for you to step forward and try to knock one away. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I guess there's something about like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's something about winners and forced errors, but plenty of players hit winners and force their opponents into errors without aggressive court positioning just by, you know, hitting really hard. So I, I don't, I, I think from a charting perspective, it's, it's, it's really hard. Have you had any ideas? No, I haven't, which is why I was hoping you would. Uh, yeah, the swinging volleys is, is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. You're right that it would be sparse. It might be too sparse. And also I'm sure every player has a, their own tendency to want to hit a swinging volley. Uh, and that would be a pretty major confounding variable, but uh, maybe there's something there. I'm just thinking of, of types of errors, but yeah, anything you might see from a player who's taking an aggressive court position, uh, you can easily see from a player who's just aggressive. And I mean, I guess so if my theory two or three steps further back, that, um, might... that the opponent tries to hit a very deep ball, more is true, then we might see, um, we might see more opponent errors being deep than average or something like that. Yeah, I, I wonder about that. Um, yeah, you're right, we would see that in the numbers if that's the way players responded to it. And you're right that players will often try to aim for the feet of those players. I wonder how much opponents struggle with with depth when if they're using the their opponent as a target as opposed to the baseline. I mean, you can see the other player a lot more clearly than, the, than you can see a white line that's so far away. And if that if that player is kind of shortening the court, then maybe your shots end up shortened as well, which is a totally different phenomenon to try to quantify some way or other. Um. We'll probably have to table that one. We don't have that much time left for this uh, this landmark 50th episode. And maybe we can kind of half speed round a few last topics. Um, one of those topics is that Roger Federer, who you've just mentioned talking about court position, is back in action. He's playing in Dubai. Actually, we're recording this on Monday evening, so he's already got his first round match in the books, a three-set win over Cole Schreiber. And no big surprise, he's in Dubai. He normally plays this tournament. Probably they're throwing him wads of money to, to show up in Dubai every year. But what is notable, newsworthy, and so on is he is playing clay this year. He's announced he's going to Madrid and presumably Roland Garros after that. Uh, it, it, I think he's trying to make it sound like it isn't a farewell tour, Not but much. it does have a little bit of that feeling. <laughs> well, um, you know, what's it, your sense with, on that, with Carl? With Federer what, what, and his sparse schedule, what do you expect from Roger? Presumably, back on he's going to have plenty of time to train. So, if he's serious about <laughs> doing something beyond playing a few matches, then 
he does he won't have to show up in Madrid totally cold, but it's just weird. I mean, he hasn't played since 20... He played, like, a couple matches in 2016 before the French Open, and I think those were his last clay matches. And, yeah, it didn't look that good then. He's He hasn't really been a threat at the French Open in, in a while. So I I don't expect much. Yeah, that sounds plausible to me. I mean, you never know, especially with the faster service, surface or higher altitude in Madrid. But yeah, I wouldn't get our hopes up too much. Um, what about Acapulco? It's the other 500 this week. Rafael Nadal is back. Um, it's an interesting mix of players since you have some hardcore guys, but also a couple of clay quarters like Nadal and Diego Schwartzman is there as well. Uh, I think the draw is a little bit weak compared to some years in the past. Dominic Team, I think, is taking the week off. Fabio Fanini, who's had a really rough South American swing, he's also taking the week off. But still some quality matches to be found there. Uh, Nadal, we haven't seen him since the Australian Open, uh, as always. Oh, I think, I think he'll be good. I think he'll be ready to go. Something of a question um, mark. You know, he played what six really good matches at the Australian Open, and... I know some of our listeners think he played a terrible seventh match against Djokovic. He, he certainly did not come close to being the best player in that match. But, uh, yeah, I think he's he's going to be fine. He's going to be a threat in Acapulco and also Indian Wells, Miami, if he plays both of those. Um, it's a good sign that he's playing this tournament because, you know, it means he's probably pretty healthy. And... Uh, It'll be if if Curios reaches that second round round match against him, then uh, I guess we'll test this this idea that Curios is unhealthy because on at Acapulco in the past, Curios has been quite dangerous to play, and if he's at full strength, that could be a great match. Yeah, that's definitely something to watch for. Um, one of the rare times on the tennis calendar that it's not good to be on Europe time on one of those late night thrillers in Acapulco happening deep in REM sleep here. Um, two more topics before we wrap this one up. Second to last one is Bob and Mike Bryan won the doubles title in Delray Beach. And this is Bob's first title with the metal hip. So I think that's 117 titles just in case... Roger Federer was getting excited about 100. The Bryans have 117. Um, but I think a lot of people are focused even more on the performance of Bob's metal hip because Andy Murray had a similar procedure done recently. And Judy Murray said something in the press recently that she can't imagine Andy won't come back because he's so competitive. He'll try to compete. Um, and w- what do you think... It, it, a, what, what do you think about any Murray? I don't think it tells us a ton. I mean, B, we already saw him come back Bob and be healthy enough, to strong enough to compete at a high level. And tells us anything? I forget about if it was the Australian Open semis or quarters that they made, but that's probably a more impressive result than winning Delray Beach. Um, so it's good news that he is able to play and play two weeks in a row, and and you know he beat um, the New York Open champs, the the German pair we talked about last week. So that's that's a really big result for them. For the Bryans, probably their biggest win of their career. Um, you know, 
Andy Murray can come back and play doubles with his brother, just like Bob Ryan came back and played doubles with his brother. Being able to play singles and cover the court in the way Andy needs to, to be near the level he was when he was number one in the world in 2016, 2017, that's, that's a lot tougher. But I mean, certainly the, the better Bob does, the better indicator, the better news it is for Andy. But I just think there's so many differences between what they're be trying to do in their comeback that it's, it's hard to extrapolate too much. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I think with most tennis fans, I hope Andy comes back strong, or certainly I hope he's able to do whatever he wants to do or aspires to do with the new hip. But a part of me thinks it would be super cool if he was only able to come back and play doubles and just went and had a second doubles career. With Jamie would be cool. With other people would also be cool. I think it would just be great to have him around as a player for another few years. But... I guess that's still several months away. So last topic before we wrap it up. We are a few days away from the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at MIT in Boston, which um, happens every year. I gave a talk there a few years ago. Carl, I know you've spoken there before and and been there other times as well. Um, As usual, there's not much of a tennis presence. Uh, We've talked about getting a tennis panel together, but nothing's ever come of it. This year, there's no tennis at all. I think, was it last year or two years before that, that the only tennis thing there was was an IBM rather marketing-heavy presentation? Uh, Yeah, it, 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 it... Tennis makes a pretty poor show there. I think there's been more golf than than tennis over the years, and it's very much dominated by the the four major American sports plus soccer. Um, do you think? You know, I think there is, is hope. There any hope I, Carl? I mean, is, had a chance to is, talk is to tennis analytics conference co-founder of five months ago, and he seemed pretty keen on a tennis panel, and he plays tennis himself. It turns out he also has an NBA team to run and probably had one or two higher priorities on his mind in the interim. Uh, and I didn't exactly follow up and, and create a tennis panel for, for him to approve. So, you know, I think I think we can do better next year. Um, I've I've been observing generally that there seems to be more activity in tennis analytics and more interest in it lately, partly very much spurred by my co-host here and uh reflected in the roundup you've been doing the last couple of weeks for tennisabstract.com of the um, around the net. So I feel like more of that and more kind of awareness of what's happening will help get tennis a bigger seat. It can't be a smaller one at future conferences. Yeah. <laughs> It definitely can't be a smaller one. Yeah, I hope you're right, and I'm, I, I hope it continues moving in that direction. Um, I think it, it will always be small compared to the major sports. Just being part of the part of it's just because there's so much more obvious need and role for analytics with team sports than with individual sports. But there's a ton of of tennis work that remains to be done, and I think would would be pretty interesting to even people who are primarily interested in other sports. So hopefully we'll have a different story <laughs> to tell a year from now. Um, in the meantime, Carl, I know you have a lot of a lot of racket lawn practice to do. 
Um, anyone listening, I'm I'm at least semi serious about the mailbag or questions answered on the podcast thing I mentioned earlier, or anything you see online you think belongs in the around the net uh, wrap ups. Feel free My to pleasure. send that in. Emails better than Twitter for that sort of thing, but maybe I'll see it no matter what. Um, Carl, as always, thank you for joining me for the 48th time out of 40 episodes, out of 40, <laughs> 48th time out of 50 episodes, which is pretty good, I'd say. Um, I've only been here for like 45 of them. The other five, I was I was sleeping and let you or, or Peter do the talking. Um, everyone, thank you for listening, especially for those of you who've been with us since episode number one. Uh, in the shorter term, we'll be back probably around next week with Acapulco and Dubai and the books and looking forward to Indian Wells. So thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.